0: Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Changed The World. Um, I'm Steve Tibbett and today I'm talking to Nathan Oswin from the COVID-19 bereaved families from justice campaign who were campaigning for an inquiry into the government's handling of the COVID pandemic Um, and now they've got that um, but they're pushing for it to happen more quickly. Uh, but the key thing i think they they want is that the lessons from the pandemic um be learned um and the way it was handled um and the mistakes that were made were you know don't get uh, made again um as well as also holding the government to account um and the leaders of our, of our country here in the uk nathan is what you might call a professional campaigner he does campaigning for a living like like i do but in line with some of the other podcasts I've done for this stream this is a campaign where the lived experience of um of those that um that were affected by the issue here obviously covid-19 they really make up the the the, the campaign itself and and as nathan says in this in this interview you know he's there as sort of a, to advise them and guide them but but not to take charge, Um, they're in charge. So I think there's some fascinating insights about that kind of campaigning, what's worked and what what hasn't. And, um, yeah, I think it's a a really interesting interview. So I'll, I'll, I'll let you listen to Nathan. Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Changed the World. I'm here with Nathan Oswin from um, COVID-19 Bereaved Families for Justice. That's right, isn't it? Right. And uh, we're talking about the campaign and um, the progress that it's made, but also kind of what what makes it tick and and what's been successful about it. Um, So, Nathan, if I could just ask you first... um, if you could say a bit about how the campaign evolved and then also how you became involved. sure no problem so the campaign first started um early
1: may 2020 so over two years ago now by joe goodman and matt fowler who had both lost their dads unfortunately to COVID 19 in late march so right at the very beginning of the pandemic who were convinced that government policies or mainly government in action around lockdown uh, periods had contributed to their loved ones losing their life. Um, Joe had done an article for The Independent, obviously online now, Um, Matt had commented on it saying, oh, I feel exactly the same, The Independent helped put them in touch Um, and they started a Facebook group as you know the only ways that people realistically could gather at that point with with lockdown starting to then be implemented towards the end of March Um, to come together to try and make sure that there was some element of accountability is how it really started you then get uh, the group being supported by a law firm, Brodie, Jackson, Cantor, who are people that have been involved in uh, Hillsborough Justice campaigns, Grenfell Justice, uh, and Pete Weatherby, QC, who's uh, been involved in them, but equally is representing families at the Manchester Arena bombing now, who started to talk about the necessity for an inquiry and potentially uh, a judicial review to, to get to that stage. That was the initial kind of arm of the campaign. Um, that ticks along till roughly summer uh, 2020 in that format when uh, Joe had put out an advertisement on um, the ECF jobs board, the Electronic Campaigners Forum jobs board, asking for volunteers with backgrounds in public affairs, communications, campaign organising to come forward and help. I was just being placed on um, furlough from my substantive employer at the time and didn't want to sit around kind of doing sure. nothing and was employed as a campaigner there so got in touch and said sure yeah. i've got some time um i'll help you and kind of give a day a week and that yeah. escalated quite quickly um into being far more uh, so that's that's how the nucleus of it all right. came together
0: yeah. and and i um i think um your main kind of ask has been for an inquiry yeah uh, which I think you've asked for a judge-led inquiry. Is that is that right?
1: So, yeah, it was um, more making sure it was a statutory inquiry. Right. So, technically, there can be um, other figures who are appointed. But, yeah. yeah, certainly a statutory inquiry with uh, the legal authority to compel witnesses up to it, including the Prime Minister, yeah. to, to appear before it, um, which we, we got commitment from the government for that back in uh may 2021 um with a start date of allegedly uh spring this year but uh, i think we're we're not there yet and the inquiry whilst the bones of it are being assembled in the background it's still not been established on a, a mm. legal footing yeah but the important bit was you know it's been announced and, right. and will be set up as a statutory one.
0: so now you kind of got at least some or most of what you want in place what kind of what uh you know, what, how has that evolved? How have your asks evolved?
1: So so the ask mainly to the government is still the same one. It's been for, you know, ever since they said, mm. yes, there'll be a statutory inquiry, which is simply get on with it. Um, mm. There's no point just announcing it and continually kicking it into the long grass. Yeah. Um, the, the families have always been really keen to iterate that, the sooner you can get on with this, the sooner you can learn lessons, yeah. and the
0: sooner you can save
1: lives. Yeah. So the ask to the government is still very much the same one that it's ever been: yeah. start the procedure, crack and
0: on. Some of the, some of the other inquiries have taken sort of forever. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So how do you how do you stop that happening? Have you got a sort of strategy for keeping them on track?
1: Yeah. So th- I mean, a large part of that isn't within the government's remit with a statutory, and that's part of the advantage of that. Process is now more with uh, Baroness uh, Heather Hallett, who is um, the the chair of the inquiry. So we have been liaising with, with her and her inquiry team and engagement team to, first and foremost, the priority for that for us is make sure that bereaved families are right at the heart of mm. this process. It shouldn't just be an exercise in structures and, and government policy, but equally it has to be rooted in the lived experience of, you know, people who suffered the ultimate loss, but not just... Yeah those family members but long covid um people who have suffered with uh, clinically vulnerable and you know there's still over 200 losses each week with um from covid19 so clinically vulnerable family groups are still far more isolated than you know other people who who have um gone back to some sense of normality so there's that engagement there at that level for the first bit the way the strategy for trying to make sure it doesn't um you know report back in 15 years and everyone goes oh well that was two decades ago and the problems are are kind of fixed now Um, mainly it's been through making sure there are interim reports at each stage so rather than um, kind of a Chilcot inquiry where you know it drags on for a decade and then there's one big report at which point you get into a, a large argument on that that there are interim reports at the end of effectively each chapter so for argument's sake if the inquiry first looks at pandemic preparedness you know on the notion that if we're into another pandemic in the future being prepared for it is absolutely key to to mitigate against loss of life that that report should be six months nine months after it starts and then giving the Parliament and you know whoever the government is by, by that point the means to be able to start to legislate and build policy off the yeah. recommendations, you know nine years before the inquiry may potentially fully finish. Um, it is a bit of a how long's a, a piece of string challenge, though. In that this will undoubtedly be the largest inquiry the UK has ever seen. Um, I think that the last. Largest inquiry in terms of evidence building was Hillsborough, which was a million pieces of evidence. Wow. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if this was nearer ten million than one million.
0: So it's a huge task. But um, I suppose, yeah, in in some ways, ju- uh, sort of what what did, you know, I suppose the question is, what does justice look like? I mean, the inquiry in some ways is a means to an end, isn't it? And, yeah. and the end being justice for the families. Um, so i mean that's partly about accountability or it's it's mainly i guess about accountability and those who took the decisions are held accountable now obviously we had party gate um for the international listeners party gate was the scandal where lots of parties were going on in in downing street at the heart of government during the covid restrictions when everyone else was just staying at home um and uh you know you've you've sort of Obviously, been commenting as as a campaign on that story, mm-hmm. but that was one I suppose moment for accountability. In the end, m- not many people resigned. I think only one yeah. sort of civil servant or political advisor resigned. So, what are you uh, are you looking for resignations or are you, or do you think that's sort of not what the families want? So the, the families are very much.
1: You know, believe and, and called on the Prime Minister to, to step down as a consequence of, of this. They uh, met, five of the, the family members went and met the, the Prime Minister in Downing Street back in uh, September last year. Um, and at that meeting, you know, he looked them in the eyes and said, Oh, we've done everything we could possible to save your loved ones. Mm. And, you know, that was taken on good faith at the time. Partygate has fundamentally changed that ability to take it on good faith that well if you've got time to be having a drink and you know wine Fridays at 4pm for for your team every single week how can you possibly claim that you've done everything possible uh, to tackle the pandemic so yes part of that that accountability is definitely around um, you know kind of resignations or, or structural change from from the senior people in government at the minute another part of it was kind of less accountability i suppose but has always been the primary driving factor for for the families and you know almost becomes about future justice is ensuring that the lessons are learned mm. that actually if we are in another pandemic the same mistakes are not repeated and yeah. people are still here because those lessons have been learned and i think for them it's part of the justice for their loved ones is about making sure that others don't go through that same experience mm-hmm. and that their loss for lack of a better term doesn't count for naught.
0: Um, just thinking about your role then if, mm-hmm. if you like as a uh, you you speaking about you know what what the families want and obviously they probably don't speak with one clear voice all sure. the time but your job i guess or or part of your job is to navigate what the families want and try and and try and sort of turn that into something that's realisable realisable politically it, how do you manage that tension what, what what sort of um, mechanisms do you have for making sure that the families are happy but you're also kind of not over promising what's possible you know in the, in the political realm yeah so I, I think there's a couple
1: of Key elements within that. One is we are set up as a structure to give ultimate empowerment and decision making to the families themselves. I've always said, look, you know, I should effectively be treated as an officer or as a civil servant, in effect, who's there to help implement your priorities and determine. The best way to make sure that happens, and we've built that throughout the whole structure. So, um, the kind of trustees of the organization have to be bereaved. There's then a central committee underneath that where every single member has to be bereaved. It is only people who are bereaved who have a vote in that committee. Whereas, you know, I'll attend and make recommendations and, and suggestions, but it's very much about empowerment for them. So, that's one key element uh, within it. And the second one for me is always about building up that dynamic of trust and understanding in and, and just having to be the realistic person in the room at times you know I'm sure you you know when you've spoke to other campaigners there's that difficult balancing act between the energy and the passion from your membership your lived experience group versus the kind of cold drudgery of the the realities of the political system and how to impact change so there's always a balancing act to be achieved I think part the, the way I've always tried to approach that is I'm a big believer in kind of some of the the Sololinsky uh, rules for radicals stuff and kind of not playing the game on you know the person you're trying to influence his terms mm. focusing on what your strengths are and doubling down on that continually to push through and move other people towards you, us for for this campaign in particular I think that was mainly around the, the the huge authenticity of the family members to speak on anything around cut restrictions and the warning about what could happen you know should these be wrong or decisions were taken lightly and having a real laser focus on understanding the purpose of the organization what the asks were and to avoid mission creep mm-hmm. where you know it can just blow up and the, the challenge with, with um, the pandemic in, in particular with that is, of course, look, this, this impacted everybody. So it's really easy to have that mission creep set yeah. out because do you start commenting on, um, you know, kind of economic support packages for small businesses? Mm-hmm. Well, that's to do with the pandemic has a knock on effect to uh, people's faith in the state and therefore yeah. um, trust uh, guidance but actually, so we started to to ensure we were building broad coalitions with other lived experience groups in those areas. So, for example, it's excluded unity alliance who do a lot of stuff around um, uh, economic exclusion, and make sure we all understood where our authenticity was within that wider sphere, and sticking to that and pushing
0: through. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about your um, allies uh, in this. And as you, you talked about a mission creep, um, there, there must be a lot of organisations um, who are knocking around this space who want to contribute somehow to the inquiry or are calling for inquiry. Do you? Is there any sort of coalition that you have or is, is there an informal mechanism of organising these different groups, talking to them, networking with them? It's very much an informal uh, one rather
1: than a you know there's not a meeting that happens each month with all that those kind of partners within it but yeah you're, you're right there's a huge amount of organizations some you know heavily established the TUC, Unite you know that kind of trade union movement, um, the me Trust you know well, kind of traditional community sector organizations and then the, or what I'd always describe as kind of the organic lived experience groups that we'd fit in that have pushed through so it was Unity Alliance Long Covid SOS right. um, etc who work together and try and understand where, our, again, it's that authenticity, where is the, the area within the inquiry that realistically you cover? One one of the things we did, and to give an example of uh, our approach with Elements, was we did commissioned a report called uh, Learn Lessons Save Lives that was highlighting what we believed the main terms of reference should encompass, what bereaved families wanted the terms of reference for the inquiry to look like, where we partnered up with... Organisations who have great expertise in an area. So, for example, uh, the TUC contributed an area around health and safety within the workplace, and then we would match it up with a family member whose story of of the loss of their loved one involved a failure of health and safety in the workplace. And to match up and show the realities for from the theory to the to the realities, I I think one of the big challenges for campaign organisations generally is that we've we become quite good at talking around the theory the facts the mm-hmm. the data sets but not necessarily always double down into that and say and here's what that means here's what that on a human to human level exposes and shows um and i think you know that is i believe how a large amount of the population uh engage with things yeah. you know, one of the bits i've always said to our campaign is look you know stories are the most powerful form of human communication you know we're almost inbuilt with this knowledge of of, you know the stories around apples representing temptation from Mm. all the way back from the story of Troy up to Mm. the Bible and you know that's because these things have been told for thousands of years we relate to each other in stories we are brought up on them and so if you can translate that theory that practicality that truth into true stories that speak with authenticity, then you relate to a lot of people.
0: Yeah. I just um, was wondering whether there were similar international campaigns that you were networking with. Or, uh, I mean, uh, does everyone, does it, do, do all countries feel that their government has messed up the COVID response or, or is there just a handful? What does that look like? I, I, I definitely think most countries have
1: questions to ask of their... Uh, government about how they handled the response. Now, whether there's been an organic movement underneath it that's kind of lived experience or mm. not, I, I think is is slightly different. We're, we're aware of there are groups in Italy and Australia, but again, their asks, you know, are, are not necessarily based around inquiries, but definitely around accountability. There's a small pocket in America that that does it as well, but it's not a hugely interconnected global. A movement around this i think partly because so much of our work was done during the pandemic when of course you know the the news cycle you know which is already increased now in the modern world but would change three or four times during a single day yeah. just to keep up with everything we we're only a very small organization we don't have huge capacity needs and I suspect that's the ca- case for a lot of others we have started to um talk to our our Australian equivalent who are looking for effectively a royal commission um, into the handling of um, the pandemic over Mm. there. Um, But I think we're probably viewed as the most organised and um, kind of established Mm -hmm. group around this area.
0: We're going to uh, stop there for a short break. We'll be back in a minute with with Nathan talking about uh, COVID and uh, justice for the families. Nathan, and uh, we're talking about COVID and getting justice for the families. Um, just thinking about your, you know, your different sort of tactics that you've used and strategies. You talked a bit about a report that you did. Obviously, you used the media, but you know, is there anything that you found that's really cut through or made a difference? during the course of the campaign. yeah, I I suppose the thing that, you know, it's the obvious example of that is the uh, National Covid
1: Memorial Wall that, you know, has just had uh, impact beyond anything we ever imagined it would. It's achieved what we hoped and then some, um, whereby, you know, part of the theory was, obviously it was mainly around Memorialization and giving families a place to go to and for people who had missed, you know, those kind of really important last rites almost to, to be able to say goodbye to their loved one and give them a, a home and a physical space that represented their experience. But equally, I think, played a role in changing the tone around what the pandemic was around before then, you know, most of the if you saw an update on um COVID nineteen on, on the BBC for example, on the website, it would be an image of the Prime Minister at um the press box where he was doing his daily briefings, which is now obviously infamous for um uh, one of his senior advisors kinda of laughing around uh Party Gate. But post the wall being built, that became the image that you know, it was the thing, and I still see it now. When you, if you get an update on your, your phone, flash through from the Guardian or the Mirror or the BBC or Sky or almost any one, that it tends to be an image of the wall. It's become this symbolism for um, a loss and pain and hurt, but equally of, of you know great love for the families to, towards their lost one. And, and I think has managed to articulate a sense of the the worry that we all had i think that's the the thing with it is you know i remember the early days of the pandemic and i think we all you know had a moment during it where we thought you know god how how bad is this going to be is this going to you know impact me personally whether mm. that's that's someone you know yourself losing your life or a loved one losing your yeah. life and i think the wall has helped create a sense of togetherness around that again so that that you know has has been phenomenally successful the other key tactic we've we've definitely focused on in actions um, and it's around from the thing when I first joined and helped the group the most common feedback that we got from uh, members was that they were fed up with their loved one being treated as a statistic so this was the days of um, the daily briefing where you know numbers were read out every single day and there was a real sense of depersonalization mm. of their loss so we've always try to incorporate images of lost loved ones make sure that people realize this isn't just a number this is a person this is a lost life this is someone who was cared for and meant the world to somebody else and that's been very successful i think in terms of helping to humanise it and to the point that you know when when our members meet MPs we advise them to take a, a photo of their loved one when the five family members went to Downing Street to meet Boris Johnson they took photos of their loved ones and showed them to the Prime Minister mm. um, so that I think those have been our, our main ones um, and of course you know we've engaged in lots of kind of traditional campaign activities letter writing engaging with as many MPs as possible but um, we're always trying to make it about the member's truth, so we don't do kind of carte blanche. You know, here's a letter about a policy submission. Mm. Write this. Yeah. It's always framed through tell your truth, tell your personal experience. That's what gives you the authenticity. Yeah. That's what makes people listen.
0: And that sort of sort of feeds into my next question because, in, in a way, you, this is an unusual campaign because you've got an issue. You've got an issue that sort of touched you know, everyone, one way or the other. Um, and, and also, you've got an ask that no one was really disagreeing with. I mean, there may be nuances where, where people, you know, wanted something different or, or... But you didn't have a sort of resistance in terms of a, a block ranged against you that was posed to what you were doing, which you do in a lot of campaigns, obviously. So it, I suppose, given that, did you ever feel that there was pressure coming back either from government or somewhere else where they were pushing back and did you ever get, did you ever feel that pressure either personally or any of the members of the academy?
1: yeah absolutely although as you say, there was never and i think the government you know realized that well how could this suggest that an inquiry shouldn 't happen you know it's the biggest. Um, you know, probably the biggest event this country's faced since the the war. You know, the Second World War, mm-hmm. um, in terms of a national crisis coming together. So there was always going to be, have to be some form of investigation. The argument was always about when
0: yeah.
1: and the format of it. Um, so, uh, you know, when I joined back in that that kind of summer of 2020, um, the government would consistently write back to the families who were seeking that meeting with Boris Johnson. Um, who would say oh we can't because we're too busy we want to meet but we just haven't got the time Um, you know and now again with the kind of party gate stuff you think well uh, we know why now but equally at the time you know I remember uh, and I was saying to the the group look you just need to show other things that the, the government are doing where they've found the time for so we did a larger range of, you know, kind of what's the Prime Minister doing today, which showed um, him on a bike ride in Brockstone, um, which, you know, happens to be a key marginal constituency. Right. Um, him uh, going, pulling up a big crab at a seafood um, wholesalers in another key marginal right. constituency, right. and all these elements that were, look, you know, the St- that stuff of course is important constituency mm. matters are important politics is important, supporting things is important but we are in the middle of a national crisis mm. where we have stories that can inform your policy and change it because we have lived it yeah. that should be taking some form of precedent some form of priority for you to engage so I- the pressure was only ever around the the when not the if, and, yeah. and that's still the argument. Now, you know our, yeah. the, the families, and, and our position has always been: look, the inquiry should be started immediately, and the best time was yesterday. The next best yeah. time is now, um, but you know they've still not formally triggered it. So that's always been the crux of the argument and the back yeah. and forth.
0: The danger now, I guess, is. The government can say, "Well, we've we've set up the inquiry, and, and the, any delays are not down to us. It's down to the sort of technical aspects of the inquiry."
1: Um, well, not at the minute. So until the prime minister formally signs off the terms of reference, the which inquiry he hasn't, he, he hasn't hasn't yet. And no. It's on his desk. And he's it's it's on his desk. Um, we're told, you know, they're talking to devolved nations, which is quite right that they should. Mm. There's there's you know, um, Scotland has already announced its own inquiry. Um, as well into devolved matters so there has to be that liaison but you know that's been sat on the desk for yeah. nearly yeah. a month now Right. Um, and this has been the habit of, of our engagement with the government right. is oh yes we'll get it done by X yeah. um, and you're very lucky if it happens one minute before X is, is finished mm. um, you know so an, another example we were told the inquiry um, the chair of the inquiry would be announced um, by Christmas, back in that meeting in September, and of course it's done the last Thursday before Parliament goes into recess. For it's sort of
0: the modus operandi like, of this government, that they were just—they're so slippery, aren't they? And they—they yeah. um, they, they kick things and continually kick things into the uh, long grass uh, uh, deliberately.
1: Uh, absolutely, and look, you know, th- there is um a very understandable political reason for the government not wanting you know the public hearings of the inquiry stage to happen this side of a general election Mm. you know what whatever and happens it is going to uncover failings you know Mm. that's entirely its purpose is to discover failings and to you know uh, make recommendations to avoid them in the future Politically, that is of course problematic, mm. um, and so that you know boot the can down the road mm. um, and work it around political timings you know makes sense from their perspective if that 's the driver, mm. of course, our driver has always been well, if you start it, you can learn lessons and save yes. lives, and mm. that should take precedence over everything else.
0: do you find it you get the question from journalists um, you know that they're you know that they they know what you're asking for, you know, and and what is but what's the news story that you can provide? Do you, do you, do you get that question now? Because you you must be difficult. Yet yeah, everyone knows about the issues. Everyone knows about the families. Everyone knows about the inquiry. So what's the news story that? That they're supposed to write it,
1: it, it's always the personal story of the member and and to be fair we think that's what it should be yeah. again you know back to that earlier point about stories being the most powerful way for for people to communicate with each other they articulate and highlight failings they articulate and highlight you know where other people have been brilliant and you know we've we've all heard stories of, of nurses you know going that extra mile to help people say goodbye to a loved one um they could all be symbolic within there so that i think is really the story you know that permanent bubble along as you say you know look everybody knows the inquiry is you know coming at some stage everybody knows around the asks you know the the public is is well aware and has an opinion on how the government has handled the pandemic although i'm sure that'll be informed a separate stage but journalists are primarily interested in those personal stories but I, I think that plays to our strengths I also think it's the right thing to do as well
0: do, do you, did you ever get um, uh, any offers from sort of high profile celebrities shall we say or high profile people or w- was that not a temptation you wanted to keep it you know keep it um, so Sort of the, you know, if you like, the real families and the real stories. Yeah, but we've never had kind of proactive outreach.
1: We've had some support from um, people. So, Riz Ahmed has has shared some of our stuff. Um, Alistair Campbell, if he's a celebrity class element now or a politician or, um, you know, has has been supportive and said things and, and numerous other ends. But for us, it's always been about making it about. the the family members as as much as anything else I partly you know the advice I always give to a member when they go to speak to the media for the first time is look you're not a politician don't speak like a politician people are fed up of hearing politicians Mm. they want to hear reality they want to hear that person's real truth and experience and that's what forms a bond I think you know people are, are kind of they can tell when someone is not necessarily authentic we're so accustomed to it now because mm. that's been the political trajectory for decades and decades mm. and people are railing against that i think that is why you know lived experience groups are getting higher profile and our people are being able to speak for themselves obviously aided by you know social media and the the growth of being able to get your message out there anyway um But that was always the main bit for us. We've always welcomed support whenever we can have it, but, you know, front and centre of our campaign is, and I think always will be, the families themselves, because that's what gives you the authenticity and that's what gives you the power.
0: Yeah. Um, A question I often ask uh, campaigners is is about sort of uh, keeping your energy... How do you keep your energy levels up and how do you keep going and sustain yourself as a campaigner, as well as obviously the, the key, you know, campaigners that are, that are from the yeah. families. And, and, you know, it must be difficult anyway, when you're dealing with such a sort of, um, you know, a, a, a difficult set of issues and a difficult set of emotions around this. So how do you, what do you say to people to sort of keep them motivated?
1: I think there's a a couple of things at at the starting bit, which is for you to be able to do it, you have to accept some truths. You know, one is exactly what you've articulated, that campaigning requires an awful lot of energy, uh, a lot of drive and determination and ability to focus on that goal and, and, you know, kind of almost be the the bulldog with a bit between your teeth on it. Accepting its peaks and troughs, you know, that is how the campaign world works you will have highs you will have lows there will be moments of great intensity there will be moments where look you are not the the focus and not the news story and then it's about understanding you can take a breath at that moment refocus have we still got the right strategy are our tactics in place and then make that push again so that's from the you know kind of organisational side as you say that the the families themselves have huge ups and downs as you can imagine mm-hmm. you know they are just honestly the most inspiring group of people I've ever had the the absolute privilege to to work with um although obviously in unfortunate circumstances um but they So, you know, finding inspiration in them is an important Mm -hmm. thing for for yourself as well. I think from their end, it's about having a supportive network that, you know, there's no point being the campaign director who kind of says, well, we must do this and we must do this immediately. If your people are not in the place to be able to do that, you have to read those signs, accept it, you know, and and redraft in effect what your plans are at that point. And the other thing is just about large scale empowerment. Uh, I think the. the only way for this campaign to be successful would be and and has been to try and broaden our empowerment and have more people involved as much as possible so that you create community that then reinforces each other's energy and if, Mm -hmm. you know, one family member says look, I'm just not in a place to be able to do this right now somebody else says, well look, we're a team, we're all in this together I'll pick the baton up and it's not about yeah. having restrictive roles for, for one element or another. And that, that's the stuff that I, I think gives everybody energy. And the other, you know, take stock at times. I think we've probably had moments where, you know, every six months or so we'll, we'll have a meeting and just say, look, let's talk about what we've done in the last six months. Because it's very easy to lose sight and not look back about your achievements to go... Absolutely. you know, can, can this to be done? Can we make a difference? Can we achieve real change? The only way you can
0: perfectly understand that is to stop, look back and go, well, look what we've achieved already. Uh, um, Nathan, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for, for, for coming to talk about this important campaign and best of luck with it. Cheers. Thank you.